If you had to guess the main theme of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, what would you guess? Participants, uh, audience participants encouraged. What would you guess is the main theme of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? Just throw out answers. Light versus darkness, great one. False idols. Something over here. What? Good versus evil. Any others? Sacrifice. Yeah. Enduring hardship. Yeah. Amen. Sounds like some of you have read the book or at least seen the movies. You may be surprised what Tolkien himself said was the theme of his work. The main theme in a BBC interview in 1968. You should look this up, by the way. It's, it's, it's gold. I'll just read you just a bit of what he says. He says, quote, Any large story that interests people and can hold people's attention for a considerable time, these stories are practically always about one thing, aren't they? Death! <laughs> and he says it with great unction. Death. Inevitably, death. This is the key spring of the Lord of the Rings, end quote. So arguably, the greatest mythic tale of the last several hundred years was arranged around the theme of death. Fans, young and old, from hippies to scholars, continue to be captivated by the characters and the adventures of Tolkien's Middle Earth. Yet, while his story undoubtedly shows what a noble and virtuous life can mean, his story is also meant to show, primarily in his words, show us the inevitability of death. Of death. Death is a part of life. Nothing will stop death. Like a violent but quiet storm, it's coming for all of us. This is sobering, perhaps shocking when I say it that way, but only shocking perhaps because we don't think about it enough. We live on a day-to-day -day basis in the mundane, in the details, in the nitty-gritty of life, not thinking often of our death. We live as if this life is all there is. Even Christians give the impression that eating, drinking, and being merry is all that matters. We don't like to think of death. And when we do think of death, it's scary. It can be terrifying. We don't linger there very long. Perhaps it's because we intuitively know that death is an enemy. We don't want to be close to the enemy. Perhaps we intuitively know that's not part of God's original good design. So we don't like it. Perhaps we also know, intuitively, that death will bring us face to face with the God who made us. So we don't linger there very long because it can be frightful. But nothing will stop death. It's coming. And you don't know when. I jokingly, not jokingly, printed out my sermon and left it on my desk and told Mason, because I traveled home this weekend, I said, if I don't make it back from this road trip to my hometown, will you preach my sermon for me? <laughs> Had my computer with me, so was, if I went down, the sermon was going to go down with me. A little tongue-in-cheek there, but there's no guarantee that I make it home after driving an hour and a half there, hour and a half back. There's no guarantee that you make it home this afternoon. There's no guarantee that we're not calling 911 within the next few minutes because one of you fell over or I fell over in cardiac arrest. This is just true, isn't it? Death is a part of life. Nothing's going to stop it. Nothing's stopping death. But here's what's also true. It's also true that death doesn't stop the promises of God. Nothing can stop God from delivering on His promise to bring His people 
through death back into his presence. Death may scare you, but it doesn't scare away the promises of God. Death may scare us, but death doesn't cancel God's commitment to his promises. This is what Genesis chapter 23 is all about. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 23. This chapter will seem like a random story with no real point. But this chapter, 23, and the next one, 24, are in the Bible to show us this very basic truth. Namely, that God's promises don't expire when God's people expire. We'll see this week and next that Abraham and Sarah are finishing their journey through the wilderness of time. But we're going to learn through these passages that the legacy of God's covenant with them is secure with their children even after their death. Chapter 23 is about Sarah's burial. 24 is about Isaac, their son, getting a wife. Both of these chapters, though, are showing us that God's promises are continuing beyond Abraham. God didn't start something with Abraham only to see it stop with Abraham. His intent from the beginning was to see those promises go beyond Abraham's life. In other words, to outlive him. And by the way, that's true for us. God's promises will outlive us, praise the Lord. They will be passed on to our children. So Genesis 23 is a short ish, simple, straightforward story about Sarah's death and her burial in the land of Canaan. I'm not going to linger as long as we might usually linger in the text in these, these verses, these 20 verses, because the point is rather straightforward. We will discuss the main point, but then I want to spend a fair amount of our time giving you several reflections on the reality of death. You guys are dying to hear those things, I'm sure. Was that okay, babe? Was that? Susie's my humor patrol. So here we go. Genesis 23. I want to read the whole chapter. And then we'll look at bits of it. Try to frame the main idea of what's happening here. Genesis 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died. That will be said of us one day. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose, bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron, Ephron was sitting there among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth four, 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. 
before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. It's highly significant that Sarah is buried in the land of Canaan because this is the land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Then verse 6, we learn exactly what that land will be. Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah or Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So he gets to the land of Canaan, only to realize that the Canaanites live in Canaan. The land belongs to someone else. So from the beginning of his time in Canaan, Abraham is a stranger or a sojourner, meaning he's ineligible to own property. But God promised to give him the land. Verse 7 of chapter 12, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Can you just imagine that? Showing up in a city full of all these people and God is like, I'm going to give you all their land. That's what he says. To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The Lord affirms this promise in chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abraham, I'm going to give you every bit of this land. Chapter 15, verse 7, the Lord says he'll possess it. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. You will possess this land Abraham. So when we get to chapter 23, that next to last verse, verse 19, and it says, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of... You have your Bible open? What's verse 19 say? End of 19? The land of Canaan. This is highly significant. Moses is making it clear that Sarah's burial plot was in the land that God had multiple times said he would give to Abraham and his descendants. So he's able to bury his wife in some land that he previously didn't own any of. Then the chapter ends, chapter 23, verse 2320 uh, ends by telling us that Abraham possessed, he finally possessed as property this field for a burying place. So Sarah's death becomes the occasion for God to begin to fulfill His promises of giving the land of Canaan to Abraham. We know this is the main point of the chapter because as you notice, 16 out of 20 of these verses are about the exchange or the negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites about the land. There's two verses saying that Sarah died. There's two verses on the land summarizing everything. Then the whole chapter is about this negotiation about what? A piece of the land. Abraham didn't own any of the land of Canaan until this point. So Sarah's death highlights the tenuousness of his situation. His wife dies and he doesn't have anywhere to put her body. You couldn't just dig a hole in the ground, especially if you were a man of stature like Abraham. He had no burial plot. He was a stranger in the land. So he goes to the Hittites. He asks them for a burial plot. He says he's a sojourner, a foreigner. The word he uses is the word stranger later in the Torah. That word is used for anyone who joins Israel in the promised land. But these strangers were not granted any land of their own. So the question underneath this elaborate, all these elaborate courtesies in chapter 23 is whether Abraham is going to be able to gain a permanent foothold in this land or not. Look back at verse 6. Look at this flattery. Hear us, my Lord. This is the Hittites to Abraham. Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your debt in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your debt. That sounds like a pretty nice offer, right? 
wrong. They're flattering Abraham, trying to induce him to remain a landless stranger. They're saying, Abraham, you can use our tombs, but you're not getting any of our land. So Abraham uses wisdom and skill, wise as serpent, serpents, innocent as, do, innocent as doves, Jesus says. He uses great wisdom and skill in his response. Look at, again at verse 8. He said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. What's going on here? Abraham understands that it'll be harder for him to convince the group. So he singles out an individual, Ephraim. Groups tend to resent outsiders. But individuals might be open for new customers to, to bargain, to make some money. So he singles out Ephron in the middle of this huge, huge group of Hittites. This is great wisdom and shrewdness on Abraham's part. But Ephron wasn't an idiot either. He knew the strength of his position. So in verse 11, he gives Abraham this offer that probably wasn't a real offer at all. He's like, hey, you can just have my tomb. Well, in ancient Middle East haggling, you would often say things that you didn't actually mean. If any of you are from other countries and you've haggled some, Susie's good at haggling. I'm like, oh, it costs that much? Great. Perfect. <laughs> but Susie's convinced that all things are open for negotiation. And most cu cultures function that way. And a lot of times it will start with grandiose promises that you don't really mean, just to kind of butter people up. But Abraham knows that gifts come with obligations. So he refuses the offer, and he's willing to pay the full price for the land. The price Ephron states in verse 15, this 400 pieces of, or 400 shekels of silver is undoubtedly high, enormously high, but Abraham has no choice, so, and he's very wealthy, so he wisely accepts it. Verse 16, I wonder if he was willing to pay such a high price because this piece of land had sentimental value. Chapter 13, verse 18, do you remember what? What happened when Abram moved to Hebron? Abram moved his tent, came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So perhaps he has an eye on this field and these trees, these oaks of Mamre, just outside of Hebron. Because there he worshipped the Lord. There he and Sarah worshipped the Lord together. This place might have great nostalgic value, so he's willing to pay whatever he must for it. The details of the property, back to chapter 23, are listed out in verse 17. Notice how specific it is. The field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was at the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area. Why is this so specific? To make us realize that this is a contract. This is a legally binding contract. It's an official contract between Ephron and Abraham. And all of this happened very publicly, it says in 18, before all who went in at the gate of the city. So th this wasn't a, a shady, under-the-table deal. This was done in front of the leading men of the city. Moses, the narrator, wants us to see that Abraham would not accept a gift from the Canaanites, just like he wouldn't accept a gift from the king of Sodom back in chapter 14. Moses wants us to see that God, not any man, was the source of Abraham's hope and blessing. So the negotiations end. Abraham has his field and his cave. And then verse 19 says, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And we would expect the chapter to just end there. <coughs> Abraham has accomplished the mission he set out to accomplish. He bought a field with a cave. Then he put his wife in it, buried her. End of story. But it's not. Moses, the narrator, added, adds verse, verse 20. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property. As property. 
for a burying place by the Hittites. What's Moses doing here? Well, this word property is the same word for possession used elsewhere when it says that Abraham will have a land to possess. Moses is highlighting the significance of this event for the first readers of this story, the nation of Israel. In this event, the Lord is beginning to fulfill His promise of the land. So this would have brought great assurance to a whole group of people standing on the banks of the Jordan about to go into where? The land of promise. And Moses tells them, hey, remember, Abraham was granted this piece of land. God fulfilled His promise by beginning to give him the land. He said He would do it for Abraham. Israel, He'll do it for you. So this testimony of God's faithfulness is meant to give Israel's hearts courage and comfort as they face the unknown across the Jordan. And likewise for us, it's highly instructive for us that we would, when we read this through the lens of Israel, that we would in our own lives look backwards as much as we can to remember God's faithfulness. Do you keep a journal? It's not a biblical command, but it could help you with this. Or just think of all the ways the Lord has provided for you, protected you, given you things that you in no way deserve, brought you through the flames and the waters in ways that you can't explain. Do you ever remember these things? When we do, when we remember God's past faithfulness, then we get present courage to keep going, keep pressing onward. This is what Moses is trying to do for Israel. So he adds this concluding statement in verse 20. Abraham's purchase of the cave at Machpelah is the first piece of property the Hebrews own in the land of Canaan. It serves as a down payment for their eventual claim on the whole land. It's a sign that the promise of the land is becoming a reality no matter how slowly. So I hope we can see why it's important that Abraham purchases this land that he's finally starting slowly to inherit the land of Canaan. But why does he put Sarah in a grave there? Why why does he want to bury Sarah there? So the point of the story is that Abraham is starting to inherit the land. Abraham could have taken Sarah back to where his brother lived in Mesopotamia, Nahor. He could have went back to his family and buried her there. Why is... He insisted on burying his wife here in the land that he just bought in this cave that just yesterday belonged to some Hittite. Because it tells us that Abraham so believed the promises of God that he knew that even death wouldn't nullify them. He believed that death wouldn't cancel the promises of God. And he sets a pattern for his family. All three of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives would be buried in this cave. Let me read you some verses from Genesis. Verse 25, chapter 25, verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. This is Abraham in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. So Sarah's buried there. Then Abraham's buried there. And then look at, or you don't have to look there, I'll just read it. Chapter 49, look who else is buried there. 49, 29, this is Jacob talking. Jacob commanded his sons, said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. And then look down at verse 13. For his sons, Jacob's sons, carried him, Jacob, to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. So this cave shows up multiple times in the rest of Genesis. Why? And elsewhere, look at the very end of the book. 50.25, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So all the patriarchs and their wives and Joseph want to be buried here or in the land of Canaan. Why? Because they believed in the promises of God 
beyond death. They were willing to leave their bones in Canaan because they affirmed that God's promises would outlast their lives. We typically want to be buried near our homes. It's normal for you to want to be buried somewhere close to where maybe you grew up or where you currently live. My mom was just telling me yesterday, yesterday about our family burial plot, our cave, if you will. It's not a cave, but it's just a place in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a forest. If I die tomorrow, good luck finding this place, guys. Uh, but that's where they'll put my bones with my mom and my grandparents and my great-grandparents <coughs> and other family as well. It's normal to want to be buried near your home. So the problem, though, is these people didn't own this land, the land of Canaan. They owned like a little spot. But they insisted on being buried there. Why? Because of their faith, it was as good as home. It was as good as home. They really believed that God was going to give them that land. So they wanted their bones put in their home. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Leah, even Joseph, prince of Egypt, wants his bones taken back to Israel. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about when he says, These all died in faith. Having, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. Abraham believed that not even death could stop the promises of God, so he boldly approaches the Hittites, pays a premium price for this piece of land so he could bury his wife in the land of Canaan, the land that God said would be his he believed that God's promises would outlast death. As I began, nothing will stop death and nothing will stop the promises of God. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, how do you think about death? How do you think about death? How does the reality of death shape your faith and your life? You're like, John, I'm kind of tired of talking about it even this morning. This is a little bit too much. Good, that's kind of my intent. I'm going to give you ten things, ten thoughts, ten reflections on death. How death should shape our faith and our life. Number one, number one, we don't think about death enough. We don't think about death enough. In a culture addicted to positivity... Thinking about death is avoided as a killjoy. But listen to Moses in Psalm 90, 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Or David in Psalm 39, 4. Oh Lord, make me know my end. Let me know how fleeting I am. So David and Moses actually want God to help them think about their death. Because they know it will produce wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. In days gone past, churches used to have church cemeteries, church graveyards. Have you ever seen this? Maybe you've spent some time in one. I only say that because there's some who like wandering through cemeteries. Church cemeteries used to be very common, and if you think about it, very helpful. Can you imagine walking past the dead every Sunday as you go into worship? Can you imagine how that would shape your worship? And how that worship would shape your life? As you reflect on the saints that have gone before you, their faithfulness, and as you reflect on the fact that you'll be there with them eventually. Thinking about death is good for those who want wisdom. So if y'all want, we can start a cemetery right out here, out there. Just put a big mausoleum out there. No. I think it's helpful when we drive by a cemetery to remember that that is where our bones will lie 
as well. It may not be beside our church, but, but they're beside the road all over the city. I'd encourage you to not drive by them too quickly. We don't think about death enough. Number two, we will all die. We will all die. Doctors still haven't found a cure for old age. No one on the earth gets out alive. We're all prisoners doomed to die, Psalm 102.20. The odd thing is that we chose this prison when we chose to assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. The Bible calls this sin. Death is the result of Adam and Eve's sin, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Sin broke the shalom and life of God's world. Unlike Tolkien's immortal elves, we will return to the ground, for out of it we were taken, we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Or Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, no innocent people die. No innocent people die. Everyone dies because everyone has broken God's rules and substituted themselves for God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What our sin has earned us is death. So if you've ever broken one of God's commands, then you're on death row and the divine court of God never makes a mistake about those who are on death row. We will all die. Number three, we should grieve over death because it's unnatural. We should grieve over death because it's unnatural. Abraham wept when Sarah died. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. I never get when I'm at a funeral and the people who are there, they just try to you know, put on that strong face and the stoicism and just, you know, but in other cultures, you see wailing and weeping publicly. It's like they understand the truth of the Bible more than we do. If death doesn't create grief, then we haven't felt it as the great enemy that it is. It's not the way God originally intended things to be. It's unnatural. We should grieve over death because it's unnatural. Number four, death is not an end, but a beginning. Death is, death is not an end, but a beginning. Death results in either waking up to everlasting life or waking up to everlasting death. Daniel 12, 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Hebrews 9, 27, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. John 5, 28-29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs shall hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There isn't a third option after death. Those who confess their sin to God and trust in Christ will be forgiven of their sin and raised to everlasting life upon their death. They'll stand before God's judgment seat with no debts to pay because Jesus has already paid them. They'll enter into God's new world with new bodies. Frodo told Sam before he departed for the gray havens, he says, quote, you were meant to be solid and whole and you will be. All those who make it to the end of their race still trusting in Christ will be solid and whole. Shalom will fill our hearts again. Shalom and life will fill the earth again. Every sad thing will become untrue. But shame and pain is all that awaits those who turn away from God's offer of life in Jesus. Think of it. How could God reward those who refuse His kindness and His goodness? What kind of a God is that? Oh, you've done nothing but refuse me. Here you go. Here's a remarkable reward. That's not justice. That's injustice. Death is not an end, but a beginning. We don't think about death enough. We will all die. We should grieve over death because it's unnatural. Death is not an end, but a beginning. Number five, death should chasten our ambitions. 
Death should chasten our ambitions. Death reminds us that we're missed, James 4.14. I think especially in a room where there are lots of college students, grad students, young singles, and young marrieds, it's especially helpful for us to remember that our lives will end sooner than we may intend. I'm not saying don't have any ambition. That's called slothfulness. That's called laziness. And the Bible has some things to say about that too. I'm not saying be a bump on the log and just sit there and wait for Jesus to come back. What I am saying is that our ambitions should be chastened. We should remember that our names will be forgotten within three generations. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Couple of you okay? Most of us don't. Within three generations, four tops, no one on this earth, unless you're, you know, Instagram famous, even that is unlikely, no one on this earth is going to remember your name. Let that sit, just sit there for a minute. No one's going to remember your name. All our big plans and big ambitions and aspirations will lie silent in a grave. This certainty should create humility. Brothers and sisters, be ambitious for the glory of Christ. But remember that your name will one day pass from the annals of this world. Death should chasten our ambitions. Number six, death makes life worth living. I didn't even realize this was in the hymn we sang earlier. Life is worth the living just because he lives. What do I mean by this? Death makes life worth living. Well, in Christ, we realize that our lives are worth living because they're not our lives at all. Our mortal life has a beginning and an end, but our real life, Colossians 3.3, is hidden with Christ in God. This is why Paul can say, to live is Christ. Is that how you would have finished that sentence? To live is, he says, to live is Christ. He sums up his whole life with one word, Christ. To live is him. He's free. Brothers and sisters, we're free to lose our lives in obedience to God and love for others. We're free to get out from in front of our video games and get out from in front of our phones and get off the couch and serve and give and live for the glory of God and the good of others. Death makes life worth living. To live is Christ. Our lives are precious and unique gifts from God. If you're still alive, then God has things for you to do. Do you believe that? Specific things. Things given to you by God for His work in this generation. Gandalf, it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after us may have clean earth to till. God hasn't asked you to do everything. It's impossible. But the reality of our death means that our life is worth living. This means there's hope for you, brothers and sisters. I know that many of you silently, secretly are suffering with despair, and depression, despondency, with discouragement daily, maybe for years. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that if Christ is alive, and if you've trusted Him, then that means, that means He's with you right where you are. And He's with you, not like with His arms crossed, like, come on, man. Dude, get over yourself, you know? Stop being so sad all the time. No, he's there loving, encouraging, patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's there with life for you. He's there with life. He's there for specific things for you to do, for his glory and the good of others. Press into him. Death makes life worth living. Number seven. Death should compel us to evangelize. Death should compel us to evangelize. 
If people who die apart from Christ go to hell and everlasting death, then love compels us to tell them the gospel. How are they to believe, to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? We should pray regularly for our non-Christian friends and neighbors and seek to build relationships with them to tell them the gospel. I wonder if more Christians spent more time sharing the gospel with people and less time complaining about politics. Imagine, imagine, there are people dying and going to hell in your life and they just need to hear the words of life. May God give us courage. May God give us opportunity and courage when those opportunities come to speak His words. The results are in His hands. But out of love, we're compelled to open our mouths. Number eight, death should compel us to disciple the nations. Death should compel us to disciple the nations. Jesus defines the mission of the church when He says, Matthew 28, 19, make disciples of all nations. Making disciples means helping people follow Jesus. And that's for all Christians, not just missionaries. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus' command is that you help other people follow Jesus. So if you're not helping anyone else follow Jesus, then I'm not sure what you mean when you say, I'm following Jesus. Because he literally says, if you're following me, you're going to help other people follow me. Make disciples, learners, students, followers. Then he defines the scope of the mission. Make disciples of all nations. Pantata ethne is the Greek word. Ethne, where we get our word ethnic. That word does not refer to all geopolitical nation states, but all ethnic groups. How could it refer to geopolitical nation states when those are constantly changing? It refers to people groups, specific language groups, tribes, Clans. The reality of death compels us to take the gospel to specific people groups who've never heard Jesus' name to help them follow Jesus and plant churches there for Jesus' sake. So the gospel compels us. The reality of death compels us to help each other follow Jesus and it also helps us, it compels us to help the ethnic groups of the world follow Jesus. Number nine, death should compel us to belong to a church. Death should compel us to belong to a church. Notice I didn't say attend church, but belong to a church. This is what we call church membership. And oh, by the way, we have a class on church membership right after church. If you'd like to know more about what the heck I'm talking about, just go two doors to your left. Right in there, there's pizza and two hours of consideration on this topic. Not attend church, but belong to a church. This is what we call church membership. In order to help us make it to the end of our journey, still believing the gospel, we need the help and encouragement of other Christians. We need weekly reminders of the world to come. Someone has said that the whole purpose of the church's gathering is to prepare us for our encounters with death. Have you ever wondered why you feel better after church? Because, Lord willing, you've just tasted heaven and been encouraged to keep going. You've been with the saints. You've been with the saints in worship. We need weekly glimpses of the world to come. We need relationships that help us keep going on our journey there. This happens by belonging to a local church, not just showing up at one when it works out with our schedules. Death, death should compel us to belong not just attend a church. Tenth, finally, we need to remember that Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated death. I want to read you some verses from 1 Corinthians 15 on this. Genesis, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Then he goes on, his argument in verse 12 continues, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or empty, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus rose from the dead. If He didn't rise from the dead, then why are you here? Why do you profess faith in a God who's dead? Do you see Paul's argument? If Jesus didn't rise, then all of this stuff we call Christianity is pointless. But if He did rise from the dead, <laughs> if He did rise, your sins are forgiven. Those who've hoped in Christ when they died, see them again. You'll be raised. He even goes on to say that Jesus is Resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Verse 20, if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, excuse me, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall, make, all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So if Christ rose as the first fruits, the first, the first bit of the harvest, then that means at His coming, everyone who's trusted Him will also, be uh, will also be raised. His resurrection guarantees ours. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we will belong to Him. Not just in a spiritual abstract way, but in a bodily resurrection kind of a way. We'll be given new Im immortal bodies ushered into a new heavens and new earth when He returns. Jesus Himself said that if anyone keeps His word, he will never see death. Those who obey His word in the gospel, repent of their sins and put their faith in Him will go from life to life, not even tasting death. That's John 8, 51 and 52. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus, then death becomes a doorway to life for you. So, we don't think about death enough. We will all die. We should grieve over death because it's unnatural. Death is not an end but a beginning. Death should chasten our ambitions. Death makes life worth living. Death should compel us to evangelize. Death should compel us to disciple the nations. Death should compel us to belong to a church. And we need to remember that Jesus defeated death. Friends, how do you think about death? How does the reality of death shape your life and your faith? Death is a part of life. Nothing will stop death, but death won't stop the promises of God. Nothing will stop the promises of God. Nothing can stop God from bringing His people back into His presence. God's promises will never die. Abraham buried Sarah in the land of Canaan because he believed that death doesn't nullify the promises of God. He was confident that God would do what He said He would do even after He died. So, friends, if you're here and you haven't yet placed faith in Christ, if you aren't yet following Jesus, I wonder, do you have confidence about what will happen to you when you die? Do you have confidence that you'll be with Christ when you die? Do you have an assurance that you'll be accepted into the presence of God when you die? Or does death still feel like an ominous threat to you? I get it. None of us want to, you know, uh, there shouldn't be a morbidness about this subject. Where all we do is think about death and all we do is talk about death. That would be unhealthy. But, but if when you think about death, there's fear and terror and confusion and there's no confidence that you're going to make it through alive, make it through death alive, then the Bible would suggest that you're still in bondage, satanic bondage, Hebrews 2, satanic bondage to the fear of death. Lifelong slavery, it says. 
Jesus came to set us free from the fear of death, friends. Are you free from the fear of death? Are you free from the fear of death? Are you free from the fear of death? If you want to know more about what this looks like, grab me after the service. Grab someone you sit next to. They'd love, we'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be free of the fear of death in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus sets us free from the fear of death. Yes, we hate death. We hate death. But in a way that the world won't quite understand, we look forward to it because we believe that death is what brings us into the arms of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please, please bring sobriety to our minds and hearts this morning. Bring a clarity that maybe we haven't had in a long time. Maybe we haven't talked about, thought about these things in a long time. And we've just been moving through life doing our daily schedules, knocking out our to-do list, not considering the state of our souls upon our deaths. Father, if there are any here who haven't yet confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and believed in their heart that you raised him up from the dead and been saved, I pray that you would bring them to faith and repentance. Give them courage to follow Christ and make Christ their life. And Father, make our church, continue to make our church a place where we get little glimpses and tastes of heaven every single Sunday. We need help. We need encouragement. Lord, please help us to make it to the end. Trust in Christ. Those who endure to the end will be saved. May we be those kinds of people. May we believe that the promises of God never expire, even though we do. Help us, Father. Increase our faith in Jesus' name. Amen.